Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Would you stand with me, please? Reading out of John chapter 13, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to portray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet, and their whole body's clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he had said not every one was clean. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Father, I pray your anointing on your word and upon our gathering here today and upon our hearts and minds to receive, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. interesting. Of the um, four Gospels, uh, John's account that we just read here is the only one of that last night that does not talk about the institution of um, the Lord's Supper or of communion. It is by far the longest, uh, most detailed account of the upper room. Um, In fact, he tells us most of what actually Jesus taught that last night. One of the interesting themes that seems to be very present is this emphasis upon love in these three or four chapters that covers this evening's event, 13 through 17. The word love only occurs six times in chapters 1 through 12, but 31 times in 13 through 17. There's just this emphasis upon love wrapped into this portrayal of the Last Supper and that last evening together. Jesus ties this emphasis upon love 
in this action we just read here, though, with this moment of washing of feet or becoming a servant. Now, Jesus had taught on this before on many different situations. Um, there was a time in uh, Matthew chapter 20 where a mother comes forward and says, hey, can my one son be on your right hand, the left hand, elevate them in power? And the others were fighting over that whole issue. And he says in verse 26 of Matthew 20, not so with you. He says, you know how people raise up and do this. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. He goes later in that same chapter, verse 28, and says, just as the Son of Man himself did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's emphasized this issue of serving, this issue of humility before. One of the places in the Gospels in Luke where he's talking about the Last Supper in this moment, he says in Luke chapter 22, verse 24 through 27, that in the midst of the supper, this final supper, a dispute breaks out among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. I mean, this is just ridiculous. They're gathered here in the upper room for this last moment of time, this Passover meal, fraught with so much implication of history and the moment and yet to come, and they're fighting over who's going to be greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules, like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I'm among you as one who serves. He turns this on its head. It's thought by many that this passage in Luke is, again, part of what happened at that Last Supper. It's very probable that it was at this point in the conversation when all this is taking place that Jesus enacts this portion that we hear about in John. Having this little squabble going on, having this addressment, he begins to get up. And um, there's something uh, of this that's incredibly powerful and seems to have captured John because he's, he's, he, he breaks this down in, in detail. First of all, it says that he loved them to the end. In other words, he loved them to the fullest extent possible, to the very end of, of the possibilities. The meal's in progress. Uh, something had already gone on with Judas. Judas had already made the decision that he was going to follow up in the meeting he'd had previous with the priest and betray Jesus. That's already happening in this moment of time. They're having their little squabble over things, and somehow after he's made this comment to them or so, it says he gets up from the meal, and John is caught with amazement and with detail. He takes off his outer clothing. He watches him wrap a towel around his waist. He, he sees him pour the water into a basin. What is he doing? And then he turns and he begins to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, this had huge significance for the time. And you have to understand some of the, the baseline history that was going on. Um, generally speaking, when you came into a house like this for a meal, a servant would be there and would wash your feet. Now, we find that strange today because we, generally speaking, wear, you know, not sandals. Also, our sewer systems are below. But in these days, there were open sewers that would run in the street. You'd have uh, um, donkey dung and all sorts of other things that you could step in, walk in, or have. You carried nature with you, okay? And as you would come into a meal like this, again, we're thinking, okay, well, it's bad enough, but you just keep those, you know, little totesies right underneath the table where no one can see them, right? But this type of table would have been, uh, I won't go into the name of a triclinear, but it basically it means a table that goes here and here. So you'd have lace, uh, a table here, here, and here. And people didn't sit like this at the table, uh, all regards to Leonardo da Vinci's work. What they would do is they would lean on pillows. 
and curl their legs up onto the side here, and they would be eating while leaning on a pillow, which meant my feet are stretched out this way, which means they're only feet or possibly inches away from the olfactory senses of the person next to me. And so if nobody had washed the feet coming in, then they're getting a whiff of nature during the whole meal. Now, for whatever reason, maybe it had been planned, maybe not, there is no uh, um, uh, person to wash off these disciples' dirty feet. And so at this low-foot, low-slung low table on pillows, these guys are stretched out, and they're arguing about who's best, who's greatest. Maybe it was even over the idea that someone should wash the feet. We don't know what's taking place, but it was clear that none of them were willing to wash the other person's feet. To do so would have been to admit to a position of inferiority. We've all been in social situations and circumstances where we felt insecure or we knew that if we just gave a little bit of space that someone was going to run us right over or take over or push us down to a certain point. And in that insecurity, we protect that dignity or position so tightly. Well, for some reason, that's how they were operating in this moment of time. And so no one was willing to take the lower position for fear maybe they'd never climb back up or the people would view them in some way, whatever the circumstances were. So they're all sitting at this meeting, meal, having a meal, trying to ignore the fact that there's another aroma just inches from my face. It's in this that they start to argue then, again, maybe related or not, who's the greatest? You know, who should be washing? Who should be the case? And it's in this moment that Jesus not only rebukes them, but then he actually gets up and proceeds to wash their feet. John's amazed. He details it. Taking off the clothing, the outer clothing, the wrapping of the tower, the pouring of the water, all that's involved. He's shocked by this, as are the others. Now, one thing that's also very important to note in the process of this is that he washes all the disciples' feet. Judas is still present at this time. Jesus knows what's going on in Jesus' heart. He knows that during this meal, he's already made the commitment to follow through on his earlier deal. He knows that. And he washes his feet too. Now, as Jesus continues into the discourse of the night and the teaching of the night, somewhere in that process, Judas walks away. He doesn't stay for the message, if you will, the teaching. He goes out to do his deed. He goes out to betray Jesus. But he does it with clean feet, washed by Jesus. That moment alone is worth taking note and having our conversation here today. But it doesn't stop there. It continues on and um, he comes to Simon Peter and, and uh, he's ready to wash his feet. And Simon Peter, Peter with his, his classic um, emotional awareness says, oh no, you're not going to do this for me. It's kind of a false humility and feeling awkward, whatever the case is. He says, no, 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 you're going to do this. And, and then Jesus makes a very interesting statement. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. What he's saying is that those that I wash, those that I cleanse, I have a connection with. There's a connection that we have. If I don't wash you, if I don't cleanse you, we do not have that connection. You're rejecting that at this point in time. So Peter, Ken overreacts, will just do the whole thing and just like, you're missing the point. Let's just keep it simple here. You got to love Peter. He's so much like us, I think, half the time. So he has this, this 
moment that he highlights for them. And then he says, do you understand what I have done for you? Do you understand what has taken place here and what's happening? I encourage you to wash others' feet as I have washed yours. Now, I, I want to say something at this point that I don't want to come off as, as critical. But, but here this is. This is... This is a living parable that Jesus is acting out. It's his last parable, and he does it as a teaching out of it. It's, it's something that they saw him do. They feel him touch their feet. They feel the grime come off. They, they feel the rinsing of the water and the drying and the pat down. This would have been so visceral that it's something they would have never forgotten. This is the last night, and it's his last parable, and he's chosen an act of service, an act of washing of the feet, it's something that must have never left them. It must have changed, and it was intended to change how they thought and how they acted. So I've seen moments of time where people have had ceremonies where they've washed one another's feet, often within a large crowd setting or so. Ways back, uh, bishops and archbishops and centuries back would do that for the paupers and the poor people, but it was in a large display. Or maybe if it's even done in private, and there's nothing wrong with the humility of that action and the, the beauty of that. I'm not critiquing that per se, but it's missing the point of what Jesus is saying here. I should mention that before the service ends, we're going to have everyone's foot here washed at one point in time or another, so I hope your toes are trimmed, okay? And we've done this properly. No, we're not going to do that, because here's what the core of it is. We wash one another's feet most tangibly and follow this when we wipe the grime of the world off an individual. Charles Spurgeon made this statement. He said, it's easy for us to criticize those with dirty feet instead of washing them. The world, they criticize. This is the business of the public press. It's very much the business of private circles. Hear how gossips say, do you see that spot? What a terrible walk that man must have had this morning. Look at his feet. He's been very much in the mire, you can see, for there are traces upon him. That is the world's way, Spurgeon says. This is before social media even. Christ's way is very different. He says nothing but takes the basin and begins to wash away the stain. Do not judge and condemn, but seek the restoration and improvement of the erring. That's how Spurgeon would put it. In other words, anything we do for each other, for another, that washes away the grime of the world, the dust of defeat and discouragement, is in essence foot washing. Now, if we're going to wash one another's feet, we have to be careful about the temperature of the water. Sometimes we try to wash someone with our water and it's too hot. We're too zealous. We're too fervent and intense. Sometimes our water's too cold and we are cold and distant in, in heart to the individual. The temperature needs to be in the middle somewhere and it needs to involve the word, we're told in Scripture in Ephesians, the washing of the word. This is what teach, Jesus was trying to teach. This is what he was trying to instruct them on. There are those that have suggested that this was in fact meant to be a parable and a model for Jesus' entire life and ministry in this sense. Following the scripture on this, Jesus rose from supper, a place of rest and comfort. He rose from his throne in heaven, a place of rest and comfort. He laid aside his garments, taking off his covering. Jesus laid aside his glory, taking off his heavenly covering. 
He took a towel and girded himself, being ready to work. Jesus took the form of a servant and came ready to work. Jesus poured water into a basin ready to clean. Jesus poured out his blood to cleanse us from the guilt and penalty of sin. Jesus sat down again, it says in John 13, verse 12, after washing their feet. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God the Father after cleansing us. This, in many ways, is a parable for Jesus' entire work. And this last night, in this moment of time, he's communicating this to these individuals. He's trying to tell and show these men that washing of the feet is a model, that humility and serving is to be the model of how we're to act. This final moment is what he expresses. There's a Chinese Christian, American, from way back, who'd been taught humility by his father, also a Christian. And as he was expressing this one time, he said for them, it was a combination of two Chinese characters that make up the words for humility. I'm not going to try to pronounce them. But he says the first word means to have a yielding spirit, not seeking one's own pride or recognition. It suggests words of humility, prioritizing the unity and harmony of the group first. The second word, he says, is the pictograph of the way a grandchild walks. And as such, we are to see ourselves like children, moving and acting in deference to our wiser elders. It's a good illustration of humility and how we're to practice that. But we're in a society that says, no, we thrust ourselves first. If we don't, someone will run us over. We need to seize the initiative. We need to make sure nobody puts baby in the corner. We stand out. This me-first attitude causes us to be self-promoting, self-protecting. But it doesn't have to be that way. Winston Churchill was once asked, this great statesman, this powerful orator, doesn't it thrill you that whenever you speak, uh, the halls and the auditoriums are packed to overflowing? And he replied, yes, it does, actually. But when I start feeling that way, I just remind myself that if I was being hung, the crowd would be twice as big. <laughs> Winston knew to not keep himself at the center of what was taking place. He knew to bring this into a place of humility. Serving. When the power went out last week... We had those that, that stepped up, a whole bunch of people, our building manager, Jerry, and a whole crew of you even, gathered together, and we pulled chairs from in here. They went out to the garage to pull chairs, so we had enough chairs, especially for second service. And so people are running chairs in and out. They're packing them out. Uh, you know, Jake had to do things on the fly. Tal and the tech crew had to do different things on the fly. Mickey was supposed to play one song on his violin. He ends up playing for the entire worship set, which I thought was kind of nice, personally. And so he, he, he adjusted. People adapted to what was taking place. We had generators, but they weren't working right at one point in time. And then Kim Soley and Dwayne Stafford and others came along because they are the generator whispers. <laughs> and they got them to work. And so we had at least enough power to run some of the basic stuff out in the atrium. And you might have seen them, or maybe you didn't see them. And there were others that filled in at different places and different times. The children's area ministry adapted, and everyone did different things. When the power hit, though, it also zapped our server upstairs here that serves all our other uh, um, uh, computer needs and things of this nature. Jeff Garreau came in. Nobody saw him. Nobody knew he was here. He's up in a little room behind the booth back up there. 
And for 12 hours plus or so, I think it was a total of maybe 18 hours over two days, he works to make sure that our survivor, which is limping along, survives long enough and gets back into play. And John Linder, when he was short of information, he turns to John and John and him together quietly, put the server back together again, spending hours to do that. And isn't that great? It all got working again by Monday morning. And then Thursday, we had another power outage. Zapped the server once again. And they came back out and processed it so that we have internet, we have the ability to communicate this service today and other things of this nature. And nobody watched them do that. Nobody does that. And they don't want anyone to know that. They get upset with me at moments like this. And I will have to deal with their anger for weeks now. Okay? <laughs> We're in Israel, 39 of us. You know what it's like trying to, 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 to guide 39 people in foreign countries like Israel and Jordan? It's like hurting cats. <laughs> no, we actually had a really great team. I got to tell you, you can be proud of them. They're, they're, they're just one person can throw everything off. Had a 6.30 uh, um, breakfast time and then 7.30 on the road with the bus. And just one person can throw it off and everyone was amazing. They were on time. They were in place. They were thoughtful for one another. They were kind for one another. They took care of each other. They were the church in action. But a lot of times I'd want to hang back and make sure that we don't lose anyone because you lose someone in a country like that, it can be really problematic. And so I'm hanging back a few times and then I stopped doing it after a while. And I'll tell you why, because John Linder was always in the back. The guy's a loser. He just hangs back there. <laughs> no, he was watching and there'd be time and again, I'd be up front and I'd look at John and John would just catch my eye and just, yep, make sure there's no one. He was counting, he was watching. Nobody asked him to do this. He paid to be on this trip. He just did it because that's who he is. There are dozens, in fact, hundreds of people just like that in this church. True disciples who have understood the ways of God and have taken example from what is being taught here this day and have applied that. You see, the beauty of servanthood is, while it helps to have certain technical skills like uh, um, an awareness of, of servers and all, and I, I understand just before I came onto the service that this server is probably going to die at some point. We're going to have to replace it at this point in time, probably. But the thing about servanthood is you don't have to have those special skills. You have to have a heart that's willing to serve. That's all. There's no special skill. John had it maybe in working with the computer, but he had no special skill walking behind 39 people and making sure nobody ended up you know, off on the side or distracted or caught off there and left behind. You don't need any special skill with that. You just need heart and a willingness to serve. This is the beauty of servanthood. This is the beauty of, of what this is. And in these final chapters, in this final portion, as, as, as John packs it full of 31 expressions of love that Jesus shares and ties us so deeply into the idea of serving, he makes it clear that, that, that you should never get so high up that you can't bend down. Now, I, I, I messed up today in this service. There's something I meant to show you earlier. I did not show you that picture. And that was a mistake. So I'm going to show you that picture now. It's a pilot. In an airplane. Now, here's the thing: is we flew back from uh, or up to Amsterdam from Tel Aviv in, in KLM, Dutch Airlines. Now, this pilot maybe could have been our pilot. I don't know. He's just a pilot, right? That's all he is. Well, yes and no. That man up there, actually, is a guy who's first of all been flying for 21 years plus. He's been flying KLM. He does it twice a month. Usually is the first officer, not the primary one. He has another job. This is just something he likes to do. He likes connecting with people. He likes flying. And so twice a month for 20 plus years now, he's flying KLM flights. 
And as first officer, he'd be the one that, of course, is going to greet people on board. He's the one that's going to sit here and say, welcome. Glad you're here today and flying with KLM. Hope you have a good flight. On behalf of me and the entire flight crew, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, okay? And it's interesting enough because he'll stand, I'm sure, at times even at the entryway as they sometimes will do or maybe in the, in the, in the cockpit looking at people. And people generally don't recognize him. What I found interesting is they do recognize his voice, they said over the years. There's various people who have recognized the voice. The reason why they recognize the voice is because this pilot, his real job, he's King William Alexander of the Netherlands. Now, for those of you that were in Israel, this guy could have been your pilot. A king flying you around. And you didn't know it. Most of the people, they said, don't know it. Most of them don't even recognize him in his uniform. I found it interesting that they recognized the voice, though. We have a king who chose service above and before anything. He chose that as an example, showing us that real love serves. And even though he was king, he still has carried all of us. Now, in the final moments that we have here, I want to bring one other person to your attention, a person whose name maybe you haven't heard of. Years ago in this church, when I was youth pastor, we had a, a program for, of discipleship for the young people. It was called Navigators, and we used material and drew, drew it from a national organization called the Navigators. Navigators were founded by a guy named Dawson Trotman, T-R-O-T-M-A-N, Dawson Trotman. Dawson was someone who had a zeal for evangelism, but, but he became concerned at one point in time that while people were being saved, they weren't developing in the faith. They weren't growing in the faith. In fact, oftentimes they were falling back, and one particular time it hit him hard because as he's going down Pacific Coast Highway in California, he picks up a hitchhiker and begins to witness to him. And, and as he begins to witness to him, the guy has a strange look on his faith, face. Both of them suddenly realized they've done this before, that in fact just the previous year, Dawson had picked up the same guy and actually had led him to Christ. But in that year's time, there'd been no growth, development, or movement beyond that. And in fact, the guy had kind of slid away from it. In that moment of time, Dawson realized there was an issue that needed to be addressed, so he formed navigators. Billy Graham also realized that a lot of times there's these great evangelistic or, or, or revival moments, but there's no deepening, there's no development, and people fall away. Ten people get saved, but only one stays. And, 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 and so he, in, he engaged Trotman and his organization to do all the follow-up at all the Billy Graham crusades. So at all the Billy Graham crusades, Dawson Trotman would be the one and his team that would come in, follow up, disciple people, and take them deeper in their walk. He was a man of profound humility as well as zeal. One time when he was visiting Taiwan, we're told that on one of his overseas trips that he um, is, is, is hiking out to a distant area to meet some of the local Christians in Taiwan. He has this Taiwanese pastor that is leading him out there. And as they go out, the road and the trails were wet and their shoes became very muddy. Later, someone asked this Taiwanese pastor what he remembered most about Dawson Trotman. Without hesitation, the man said, he cleaned my shoes. Somewhere before the pastor got up, Dawson got up and he cleaned that pastor's shoes of the mud that he was coming to visit. It stuck out to him. But it's how Dawson died 
made the biggest impact. Dawson Trotman died on June 18, 1956. He was 50 years of age, and he was at a camp um, for young people, and he was to speak at that camp. One afternoon, while riding in a boat with the person who led that camp and a few campers, they hit some choppy water. Dawson and the female camper were launched out of the boat and into the water. The woman or the, 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 the young woman did not know how to swim. And in the time that the boat was able to regain control and come back around, um, she would have drowned, except for the fact that Dawson held her up the whole time until she was rescued, himself dying in the process. Billy Graham spoke at Dawson's funeral, and he said this of this last act of heroism. He said, Dawes died the same way he lived, holding others up. Jesus gave us an example and tells us that real love serves. He died lifting others up. He asks the same thing of us. We are to wash one another's feet, not in the physical way per se, maybe at times, but in a way that takes away from the grime and the dirt and the discouragement that clings to people. Do we add to that or do we clean? Are we caught with a position of power or of humble submission and service? Jesus died after lifting others up. He connected with them when he cleansed them. Love sees us. It seeks us. It speaks to us but it also serves and is tangible in what it's doing. It asks us to take the grace that we've been given and to extend that to others. And so the question this morning for you is today is this. Is service a part of the matrix of your life? Is it involved in how you see others and how you engage them? In what way do you serve in what way do you see this as a central aspect of who you are in your relationships, in your work, within the church, outside the church? How do we engage that? Jesus said this was so significant and important an issue that on the very last moment of his life with these men in this moment, he physically illustrated it. John is so caught up with that moment that in addition to the other teachings, he doesn't even reference the supper. He just can't get over the fact that his master would wash his feet. Peter doesn't want to have anything to do with it until he's made clear that only if I cleanse you are you connected to me. If he has cleansed you and me and we are connected to him, then the next thing is to look and say, what act of service are we to be involved in? It doesn't take special gifts. It takes heart and willingness it takes approaching individuals and seeing the dirt and grime and discouragement and saying, look it, I want to I not add to that. I want to I use words and actions that refresh you, restore you, and draw you in. This morning we're going to take of communion, the communion that John doesn't talk about, but the other three apostles do. Our communion is an open communion. You do not need to be a member of this church. You do need to be a follower of Christ. You'll find two cups, one with the bread below and the, the wine above. 
We just ask that we'd hold it and we'll take of it together. But as this is being distributed today, I call you in this moment of time, on this Palm Sunday, on this one week before Easter, to consider what role does service have in your life? And whose feet have you washed recently? How much is this a part of who you are? Because real love serves. So as this is distributed today, I call you to that consideration. Father, as we take this moment of preparation, we've already spoken your word, but Lord, it's your Holy Spirit that makes it live to hearts and minds. So we pray, Lord, that in this moment of time, your Holy Spirit would shape our thinking and that we would be struck as deeply as John was and these other apostles, Lord. And that something about this conversation today would change how we live. We approach your table in Jesus' name. Amen. Though John does not record it, the other three writers do. They say that on that night, that Passover night, that night that illustrated the Israelites coming out of Egypt where an innocent lamb was slain and its blood spread over the doorposts that when the angel of death came on that final plague against Egypt to kill the eldest male child of every household that when it saw that innocent blood shed over the doorposts that it passed over that house and so for hundreds of years the Jewish people had celebrated that still do to this day and it's that dinner, that meal that the other three write about, that he took the bread that was part of that, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. This has been celebrated for centuries, but now I'm going to give you the real meaning, who the real Lamb of God is. It's me, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, this morning as we come before you, we thank you, Lord, that you came as a servant, that you sought us out, that you loved us to the very end. And this morning we accept broken bread, the symbol of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we? He then took a cup from that same Passover meal and filled it with wine. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness for sin. Sin requires a death. But Jesus says, I'm the one stepping up. It will be my blood, not over a doorpost, but on a wooden cross that will cause death to pass over you. So this morning, Lord, as we gather in this place and we remember, we remember. We remember our sin and our shame. But we also remember when you cleansed us and a connection was made and we were forgiven and washed clean. We accept this this day from your hand. In Jesus' name, amen, shall we? There'll be those available up front here if you'd like prayer. As you go into your week, look for opportunities to wash someone's feet. Uh, don't, don't get weird with them, okay? Um, but, but look for some grime that can be wiped off. Look for some encouragement that can be given. Look for something that can be cleansing in your conversation. This Friday, Good Friday, um, baptismal, it's going to be an important time to be here. Next Sunday, one week from today, forget about Christmas, forget about uh, 4th of July, all the other holidays. This is our holiday as Christians. And that's one week from today. Be here, okay?
I don't care if the power's off, the power's going to be here no matter what. Okay? So, Father, I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for your grace. Guide us, Lord, deeper into your truths and into understanding of those things. Strengthen us, I pray, O oh God, as we walk into this next season of time. We commit these things into your hands in faith believing. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the church said, amen. 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 God bless you guys.